Every month, Past Blue produces an original podcast for our unscripted series on the Security Council Rotating Presidency. In February, we spoke with the Ambassador of Guyana, for example. Unscripted brings you straight into the Council Chamber, where the UN's most important work takes place. Each month, we speak to diplomats about their country's agenda in leading the Council and their goals to achieving global peace and security. Unscripted is a podcast from Past Blue, a women-led media site providing independent coverage of the UN. Search for Unscripted wherever you get podcasts, starting with SoundCloud. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson with Doha Debates. This week, we wanted to share a bonus episode with you. Our friends at Foreign Policy Magazine have a great show called Foreign Policy Live. Each week, their editor-in-chief, Ravi Agarwal, sits down with world leaders and policy experts on the issues that matter the most to you. We think you'll enjoy one of their recent debates on China. Has China peaked? Take a listen. Find out. Hi, I'm Ravi Agarwal, Foreign Policy's editor-in-chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. There's been a spate of unflattering economic data out of China recently. Growth in the most recent quarter ending in June amounted to just 0.8%, dragged down by weak consumer spending. Trade flows have declined the most since the start of the pandemic, and rising geopolitical tensions have led companies around the world to accelerate moves to shift their manufacturing and supply chains away from China. Now, Quarterly data, of course, is just a snapshot. Zoom out, and there's little doubt that China's rise over the last four decades is astonishing. A slowdown was perhaps inevitable. But is China's malaise right now more than just a bump along the road? In recent years, a school of thought that China has peaked, or at the very least is peaking, has grown in popularity. Writing in Foreign Policy, Hal Brands and Michael Beckley popularized the term peak China and raised concerns about how Beijing might react to stalled growth. But there are also powerful counterarguments popularized by the likes of K.U. Jin, who argues in the New London Playbook that while China might be slowing, it still has a lot of room to grow and that theories of China's decline are rooted in fundamental misconceptions of the country's economy. Well, which theory is correct? This is a really important debate because we can only know how to create policy regarding China if we know what its trajectory actually looks like. So I invited Michael Beckley and Kei Yujin to air out their perspectives. Michael is a professor at Tufts University, and KU is a professor at the London School of Economics. As always, FP subscribers get to send in questions that frame these discussions, and soon you'll be able to ask me questions too. I'm doing an Ask Me Anything episode later this summer. Send in your questions about the show, foreign policy, world affairs, by emailing us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. Once again, That is podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. I can't answer everything, but I'll sure try. For now, let's dive in. Michael, KU, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you both on. So let's begin. I've asked both of our guests to explain their respective cases in about 90 seconds each, and then we'll dive into specific issue areas. Michael, I'm going to start with you. Uh, You argue that China is peaking. 
your time starts now. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for having us. And congratulations to Professor Jin on her excellent new book. I think of China sort of like a balloon. Um, China for decades has been rising up the ranks of the great powers. A lot of people thought it's going to soar past the United States. But for some of the reasons you articulated, Robbie, China's rise has started to stall. It's not going to plummet back to earth. I don't expect the balloon to pop, but it is struggling increasingly to gain more altitude because, as you mentioned, those tailwinds that have really lifted China up over the past three to four decades, some of them are becoming headwinds that are dragging it down. The economy is slowing, productivity is declining, so you have Chinese companies having to spend more and more to produce less and less. Debt has exploded, so China's pile of debt is now roughly three times the size of its economy and rising fast and somehow has managed to make America's debt problem look fiscally responsible by comparison. China's population is aging and shrinking. Every year, millions more senior citizens, millions fewer working-age adults. And yet somehow China also has a youth unemployment problem, which is currently at around 20%. So you have this double whammy of fewer workers and fewer jobs. And I think that just reflects the general lack of demand and dynamism in parts of the economy. Uh, China also faces geopolitical headwinds. So in many countries, anti-China sentiment has surged in recent years. You have the United States and its allies building up their militaries. They're forming anti-China alliances, imposing economic restrictions on Beijing. China's main ally, Russia, is, is imploding. Um, and the loans that China has doled out across the global South are starting to mature, and, and many are not being paid back. So none of this looks very good. And just given how the CCP handled covid the fact that Xi Jinping has started telling young people to eat bitterness. Um, I just, I don't have a lot of faith that the CCP has a great plan to handle these headwinds and rekindle its rise, but I worry that Xi Jinping will definitely try to do that. And, you know, these past mm. powers took drastic actions to reorder the world, and China seems to be giving off all the classic signs it intends to do the same. All right, Michael, thank you for that. Um, that's your opening statement. KU, you have a different argument to make. Your time starts now. Uh, to put things into perspective, China's growth is contributing to 35% of gro global growth this year. And just starting from the question of what does peak mean? By any basic economic theory, you're never going to grow as fast as you did before, starting from developing countries. So growth rates have to inevitably slow down over time as you get richer, which is what China is doing. Uh, and 4 or 5% growth in today's world is not really a bad thing. But really, the basic just of my argument is about potential, economic potential. The basic precept of convergence, conditional convergence, is very much alive. Uh, China's GDP is only about 16% of uh, U.S. levels currently. There are 600 million and more people in China who are living under 2,000 RMB, $300 per month of income. Can you imagine the amount of growth that, that would transpire with these people moving to real middle income by international standards? 25% of the labor force is tied to agriculture as opposed to 3% of industrialized countries. And even if we have the, or believe the argument that China has totally exhausted physical capital and labor force economics, there is still one big opportunity, which is productivity and human capital accumulation. China's human capital level is only a third of the U.S. standards and uh, measured by higher education share of population. Its productivity, labor productivity, is only 12% of U.S. And we do see convergence across countries and over time, especially when these countries have high saving rate, 
a huge amount of physical infrastructure, not to mention digital infrastructure, and high skills of labor. In addition, China plans to have a $16 trillion digital economy. The service sector moving to from 50% currently of GDP to 80% of GDP amounts to 3 trillion US dollars, in addition to 35 trillion US dollars of renewable investment in the next few decades. That does not mean that China necessarily will reach its potential, but the potential economic growth is still there. All right. Thank you, KU. That was very succinctly laid out. Both of you uh, have made a set of points that I think we now need to sort of grapple with uh, at a more granular level, um, taking on individual issues. So I thought I'd just start with demographics, because I think, you know, to observers uh, outside of China, this is the one that seems you know, the one thing that is absolutely indisputable that, you know, every year, uh, partly because of the one China policy, China's fertility replacement rate is pretty much at Western levels. And we know that there will be fewer workers uh, in the future because of where demographics are. So let's just argue that a little bit. Michael, uh, I'll come to you first. You mentioned it. Give us a, a sense of why China's demographics will sort of push China into slowing growth and what other ripple effects will come from that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it just because I think it's such a tectonic force that even if China implements a number of smart reforms, it just seems like they're going to be swamped by the massive tide of this aging problem, which is the worst, I think, in human history. So China used to have anywhere between 10 to 15 workers to support every retiree in its population. That's going to collapse to two to one just over the next 15 years or so. So it's this amazing contraction where China is going to lose basically an entire France of workers while gaining an entire Japan of elderly senior citizens. And, you know, that's going to cause obviously fiscal problems because now you have to pay for all that. It's going to reduce the productivity of the workforce. It's going to erode the core institution of Chinese life, the family. I mean, people are literally just going to have far fewer kinship relatives, which means they're less likely to migrate and try a new job because you don't have your cousin's couch to crash on. It means fewer cousins to help take care of grandma when she gets older. And so it just compounds a whole number of problems. I know China, I mean, we can talk about the, the productivity potential um, or whether China can replace workers with robots, but even if they do, you know, workers don't buy things. And so there's at least going to be a contraction in demand in the Chinese economy. And the lack of that demand pull is going to make it really hard to grow uh, sustainably in the years ahead. Hey, you, how does one argue against that? Well, first of all, I, I want to say that um, the challenges that Michael has laid out in the beginning, I very much agree with. Um, some of them, I believe, are more short-term rather than structural challenges, but this is for open debate, of course. On the aspect of uh, demographics, yes, uh, China is aging, accelerating aging because of one-child policy in part, but there's still 400 million millennials uh, in the population. I know it's the share that matters, but this is a very large group. It's more than uh, the U.S. millennials and Europe millennials added together. And I want to make a generational argument. I totally agree that if you look at a standard steady state economy, every generation very similar, then yes, if you have a shrinking um, younger group, that does spell problems. But the Chinese new generation is something else. They're completely radically different from the elder generations. They borrow like crazy, turning China from a saving country into a borrowing economy. Uh, eventually, they consume, they have, uh, they, they, you know, they have, you know, lifestyle consumption tastes that are wholly different from the saving for a rainy day 
of the older generation. They earn something like six times the income of their parents' generation, which is more than to replace or cover the 0.1% a decline in labor force potentially. Uh, again, and this will happen over the very long term. Uh, so it's not the number of labor, number of people in the workforce that really matters. And as Michael has alluded to, it's the efficient, effective number of labor. So it really depends on Chinese productivity. And I fundamentally believe that technology adoption and population structure is an endogenous thing. It's a self, you know, it's a co-evolving process. And we're in the midst of debating about AI displacing jobs, et cetera. So I think that uh, I agree with the family fabric, but you know, China has experienced um, for a long time a country with too many people, some would say. Um, and we also systematically over time across countries, we have not identified any systematic economic empirical patterns that demographics is the sole cause or, or the main cause of many macroeconomic woes. And I truly believe that if demographics didn't help China on the way up, it's not going to explain China on the way down. Hey, you just a follow up question there, um, because, you know, China, if you make the sort of cultural generational argument, it's also fair then to say that China was once a country of savers. And if uh, China's millennials today, the 400 million that you're describing, if they are more likely to spend and borrow, doesn't that lead to its own set of complications uh, in terms of a debt bubble? Oh, yes, I agree. But, you know, there's an issue about how much is there really weak demand and consumption, weak consumption in China explaining the present woes, if that's the case, and getting the young people to consume rather than save is probably a good thing. Uh, I think the downside is, is there going to be enough fiscal capacity to make more investments and invest for the future, including high tech and renewables and all that. And I think it's really about a balance. I think at the current stage, um, in particular, this these few years, the lack of demand is really explaining China's economic problems. So having them wanted to consume, I think, by and large, is a, is, is a good thing and benefit outweighs the cost. Michael, how do you think about these 400 million millennials who could be an engine of growth for China? So I think there's both demand and supply problems. The demand problem is, I mean, who after zero COVID, who is going to spend a bunch of money or after the housing, the mortgage crisis, you know, where people couldn't get their money back for half built apartments, I mean, or with youth unemployment at 20 plus percent, who is going to spend a lot of money. I think it's notable that Chinese consumption actually went down recently, even after Xi Jinping announced his new consumption-led growth um, initiative. But on the supply factor, Professor uh, Jean is right that there are these people that are underemployed. And if you could somehow get them into the workforce, uh, you know, you'd have a big productivity boom. But the problem is China has systematically underinvested in basic education. And so today, only roughly 30% of China's workforce has even a high school degree. That's dead last among middle income countries. And so effectively, you have this huge workforce where a lot of these people, you know, 70% are either high school or middle school dropouts. And, you know, in addition to Professor Jean's book, I would recommend people uh, read Scott Rosell and uh, Natalie Hell's book, Invisible China, which goes into rural China, where most of China's young people are coming from, and they find they're severely undernourished uh, they have very low levels of education, and they estimate there's roughly 200 million essentially unemployable workers in a modern service sector economy. And so it's just you're just going to have this big group that it's going to be very hard for them to work in any modern 
um, job. And then you also have to factor in the politics, that there are vested interests in the Chinese Communist Party that profit from the infrastructure-heavy, state-connected firm model, and they have typically blocked reforms that try to transfer wealth back to households to stimulate consumption. This happened in 2013, where China partnered with the World Bank. They came up with all of these reform proposals that were supposed to infuse market mechanisms back in, and then they basically didn't implement the vast majority of those. And Xi Jinping himself, I think, has clearly shown he prioritizes his own power and security. And so a liberalized economy with a bunch of charismatic entrepreneurs like Jack Ma running around is not in his interest. An open flow of information to create ecosystems of different industries is just not in his interest. And that's why he's prioritizing these, what he calls the real economy, you know, heavy investment in industrials. That's something the state control, that's something Lenin said you should do if you're a dictator, you control the commanding heights. I fully expect Xi Jinping to continue to do that. So even if there is this potential, I see, I don't see it being realized just given the politics and the lack of education in the country. Hey, you, I have to let you come back on that because this is a debate for many other countries as well. I think you know, India, for example, has even more young people in terms of raw numbers than China does and often debates whether they could be a demographic dividend uh, or if something worse will emerge from that if the state can't create enough jobs. What does China need to do to ensure that these 400 million millennials and people younger than them, Gen Z, um, that they can get jobs, that they can rise up the ladder, that they are more optimistic and why do you think the state is well-placed to do those things? Actually, I disagree with one of the previous arguments we made, which is actually getting educated in China is easy. That's the easy part. The hard part is to get the right skills to adapt to the economy. And so right now, there's a current, not a demographic challenge. There's a big education skill mismatch. And in fact, education has raced ahead of the economy uh, in China. Too many uh, being educated, highly educated than the economy needs. And it's not like there are no jobs. There are 25 million workers, uh, uh, manufacturing workers job gap by 2025, 300,000 talent gap in semiconductors alone, and many, many other examples. The real question is not to get educated per se, but can you be equipped with the right kind of skills to deal with a modern society that China is right now? And right now, China is doing as a fastest pace that any government can imagine, expanding vocational schools, vocational trainings, and because of the levers that the government has, it can actually encourage and entice people to move into vocational training uh, very rapidly. So it's about reducing that skill education gap that I think is more important. And I don't also agree with entrepreneurs. Yes, we hear anecdotes, one anecdote, two anecdotes. There were regulations, technology, education. I totally agree that the ways that it was brought about um, is less than optimal, potentially erratic and dramatic, and had its bad consequences on the economy. I fully agree with that. But if you're asking the Chinese people, Chinese entrepreneurs, young ones on the street, are you not inclined to do entrepreneurship because of Jack Ma's story? The answer is resoundingly no. They think they can be millionaires, billionaires because of the China's large market. They have just so many ideas of innovation and um, China is a big country. It's not like the other countries, which just relying on domestic economy won't be sufficient to overcome the middle income trap. I think China's challenge is too much reliance on exports, et cetera, is, uh, is, is going to not be you know, a driver of growth. And it has to redirect the demand back to the domestic economy. And for all the arguments that have made about 
the Xi Jinping's politics, I'd argue, look, China is a totally decentralized economic model. Forget about the political centralization. Yes, we all know about that. But on the ground, local officials are enabling entrepreneurs, helping entrepreneurs at a daily level. The reason being their incentives are totally aligned. It's the good, productive, promising entrepreneurs that bring the jobs fill the local government coffers, uh, make the unicorns that the local governments need to climb the uh, higher run of the political ascension. And they are knocking on the doors of entrepreneurs every day asking what they can do help. So it's not about just the rhetoric on the macro level, what Xi Jinping himself says, but actually what's happening on the ground. And it's still vibrant um, uh, uh, with its challenges because of the debt issues and the financial issues, but the spirit is not yet lost. So we've talked about demographics. We've talked about demand. I think we also need to talk about debt, the other D um, in this list of Ds. Uh, Michael, and I thought I'd come to you to make the case for um, why the world should worry about China's debt load, how bad it is, and what implications it has for its economy moving forward. Yeah, so I just checked the the latest stats, and it suggests China's debt to GDP ratio is at 297% and, and rising rapidly. And just as a point of comparison, the U.S. debt to GDP ratio was something like 255% and has been declining in recent years. And certainly you would not brag about America's ability to manage its debt here. And so it just kind of puts China's issue in perspective. And I think it touches on an issue where I have a different uh, view than than Professor Jun on the, the structure of the economy. So I don't see it as a purely economically decentralized system. Basically, my understanding is that the central government will set targets or set goals, like we want X market share or X number of patents, and we certainly want high growth. And then local governments basically have leeway, but have to basically figure it out. And they often have to find a way to pay for it. And so they either raise revenue through land sales to property developers, but land is finite. And so increasingly in the last decade, they've been raising massive amounts of debt to just have all of these massive infrastructure projects so they can please the higher ups in Beijing and work their way up the Chinese Communist Party. And that just leads to a short term focus on maximizing GDP growth, building bridges that are underutilized and not in investing in the welfare of the Chinese people. And, and this is why local government debt alone is estimated by Goldman Sachs to be about $23 trillion, which is larger than China's entire economy. It's been soaring at 16% a year for the last four to five years. That's that's four times faster than the growth of the economy. And 90% of the, the state-owned enterprises are in a debt trap where they're basically taking out loans to pay the interest on their existing loans. So it just seems like a horribly wasteful system, but it's also one that's hard to shift from because of the political factors uh, that I mentioned earlier, that there are these powerful vested interests. And I haven't seen any evidence that the state is willing to take those on and fundamentally reform the economy. Um, and the idea that, you know, it, it was just one example of Jack Ma having his wings clipped, I think is, is belied by just tons of Stats where I mean, you can just read Chinese regulations that say you have to have a political commissar on staff if you have more than 50 employees in your firm that the state has been taking out these golden shares and even supposedly dynamic private firms where, yeah, they only have a 1% stake, but they basically have management rights. And if you look at the people they've been appointing to the board of directors, like, for example, ByteDance, I mean, the, the, these are staunch promoters of the party, not so much of, of what we would consider sort of economic efficiency. Um, and there's lots of other regulations we can talk about, all different industries, you know, private tutoring, gaming, the tech industry and internet firms. But I just, 
you see the pervasive presence of the state. And so I would hesitate to just assume the economy is can just exist as this separate decentralized entity while the politics are getting increasingly centralized. And the outcome of this is, is a wasteful growth model that stocks up debt. But Michael, just to jump in there and to channel something that KU said, which is that, you know, if you ask the average Chinese entrepreneur on the street, they don't seem to be deterred. Uh, KU also pointed out that there's an alignment between what Chinese entrepreneurs want and what the state wants. And that's why at a local level, uh, there seems to be a dynamism. And I think for anyone who's visited China, you see a lot of that dynamism, too. So how do you counter that? I think there's there's different types of dynamism. So, you know, I've seen surveys that suggest uh, that private entrepreneurs have to spend a huge chunk of their time essentially schmoozing with Chinese Communist Party officials, because that's really the way that you're going to get a permit, you know, to start your business, to be able to open up office space, et cetera. I mean, you, you need the party's blessing to really be a major entrepreneur. And so, yes, it's it's dynamic, but it's, you know, <laughs> it's people who are constantly looking to the state for direction or permission to do things. It's people that are scared to share information in an open way because the state will censor it. And then even if you do succeed, you, you just never know if the state is one day going to come in and expropriate your assets or shift priorities. I mean, Xi Jinping has done that most recently with a number of industries that he doesn't consider the real economy. A lot of these are uh, service sector uh, area uh, industries that he says, this is, should not be our priority. It weakens the nation. We should be investing in the hard science and engineering assets. And so you're just kind of at the whims of the party at the end of the day. And it's just a very different kind of economic dynamic. And I'm, I'm just very skeptical that in the long run, that can lead to sustainable innovation because you don't have the information flows, you don't have the secure private intellectual property that you would really need to fully incentivize people to take the kind of risks to become a true entrepreneur. Mm. Hey, you, there's a lot there that I know you want to refute. So I'll let you do that. But I also want to ask you how you think about the debt issue. And also the fact that ultimately, one way to think about debt is whether the growth rate is ahead of the interest rate. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I totally think the debt problem is one major challenge uh, that I totally would agree to within this discussion. I'll come back to that. But first of all, I want to say that if Communist Party officials are really making strategic decisions for Chinese companies, I have nothing to worry about when it comes to competing with the U.S. The U.S. should rest assured that this is not really uh, worthy of their competition. But the truth of the matter is, it's nominal, you know, it's um, maybe a, a bit more, a few more hours every week, but you know, the number of committees that American companies, uh, officials, high executives have to sit every week that has nothing related to their core business. I don't think it's actually more than that. And the local government officials provide much more. Yes, I agree, you know, uh, with Michael. Yes, dealing with the government is something, a skill that all Chinese entrepreneurs from the very start had to have the agility, the responsiveness, the skill, the craft, you know, the kind of carefully crafting that relationship is really important. That determines your survival. But I also believe that this is very different from the fundamental old playbook, which was about whining and dining local officials. That's totally changed. That has totally stopped. Instead, you have local officials building industrial clutters and mini Silicon Valleys all over China that's helping Chinese entrepreneurs. If you look at the number of unicorns, Chinese technology unicorns, it's scattered all over China, all over these second tier cities, not just in Beijing and Shanghai, and cities that we have never heard of, Hefei, having global quantum companies 
the local government supporting them, not financially most of the time, but helping them attract talent, a coordinated financing from state banks and, uh, you know, overcoming, you know, kind of collaborating the entire uh, supply chain is something very important. Of course, the central government has to be involved in some ways. The central government also put in 4 million EV charging stations around the country, as opposed to 140,000 EV chargers in uh, the U.S. That's really what made China go from zero to the largest and biggest consumer and exporter of EVs. So we can debate about the role of the state. This is There's no way to look at this black and white. I think we're just looking at, at China from the American or Western lens and saying that you know state intervention is bad. I don't see how... Uh, China can continue uh, with this number of interventions, but that's the whole model itself. China has had this political economy model for the fastest growth rate, and people, people, I think, underestimate the levers and the mobilization coordinating and these powerful forces that the state has has also contributed. So there are mistakes, there are erratic policies, but I would argue that Chinese entrepreneurs went way more, went through way more than they're experiencing, some of them are experiencing with the regulatory crackdowns. And by the way, e-commerce is back, Alibaba is back, Didi is back, You know they're luring these entrepreneurs back because they also need them. And we wanna see it as a pendulum swing, nothing is permanent in China. It's you know left and right. It's always a fight, fine-tuning, recalibration, and reassessment of the right policies. So I think the bottom line for me is not that there's going to be an economic collapse, not that China is this remarkable engine that's you know uh, shooting to the moon, but it will be slower, potentially even just mudding through, but inching towards the twenty-three thousand dollars, thirty thousand dollars of higher income level. And your debt question, um, totally agree. Debt is the major uh, clicking bomb in China, although I don't believe there's a financial crisis because state coordination will resolve these debt issues. Um, but I just want to mention that household balance sheet is relatively healthier. So uh, asset to, uh, liability to asset ratio is about 11% in China as opposed to 18% in the US. So this is not going to affect consumption as so much as it limits the amount of power that the local officials can unleash onto the economy. And if you look at the central government balance sheet, it's pretty healthy. There's a lot of fiscal capacity. I also agree. Um, I believe that now is the moment where the state, including the local officials, should step back, not to be non-existent, but they should let the market do more of the job. So my opening statement, it's about reaching that potential. And I do agree with Michael, are there the political appetite, the reforms that will occur that can push China towards its economic potential? And that's no, by no means a given. Uh, there's so many more angles to cover here, uh, and I want to get to a couple of them. Uh, Michael, over the last few years, one thing has become very clear. The United States has changed uh, its tone and its policy towards China. It seems to be bringing other countries together to try and sort of push tougher moves against China. I think specifically the CHIPS Act, trying to limit China's access to semiconductors. How do you see the global geopolitical environment surrounding China as being a factor that might impact China's growth? I think it's incredibly important because even though China obviously has grown stronger and, and wealthier and is clearly, I think, the second most powerful country in the world, it's also in a very rough geopolitical neighborhood with 19 countries around its borders, most of which are either powerful or unstable or some combination of those two things. And then now it's also garnered the 
hostile attention of the United States, um, which for you know many decades was actually supporting and aiding and abetting China's rise, first to try to gang up on the Soviets, and then, you know, in this era of engagement where the Americans thought they could sort of change China over time and integrate it into the liberal order. Now that's that's over. And so it certainly doesn't mean that uh, China's dreams of rising up the income scale or, or continuing to be a great power are null and void, but it just means a much more difficult environment. So China, you know, if you look at uh, data on foreign direct investment, how it's really gone down, how even corporate actors now are saying, you know, this geopolitical risk is too much for us to stomach. We're going to try to find ways to move our supply chains elsewhere. So that, of course, just crimps China's access to capital and technology, which even today, despite all the success in China's economy, it still needs, you know, it imports something like 80 to 90 percent of its high end computer chips and advanced manufacturing and medical devices. And of course, you know, a huge chunk of its oil and um, food. And so it's just still heavenly reliant on foreign markets, resources and technology. And the fact that the United States is basically trying to rally its allies and, and cut China's access in strategic sectors is certainly another headwind that China faces going forward. Hey, you, how do you see this new global movement to sort of limit China's rise or to constrain it? How is it seen by the Chinese? And do you have a view on whether China can sort of evade some of those moves? Yeah, I, I totally agree that this geopolitical factor is a major headwind. Um, uh, I think if we look at uh, global supply chains, uh, how China is deeply embedded, but China is trying to move up the value chain that requires uh, higher technology. And if there's less technological cooperation, which there inevitably will be, uh, I think it is a major challenge. Uh, you know, technology progress also relies a lot on global information flows and collaboration. So yes, I think China should be concerned about that. Now, I just wanna mention that for every action, there is a reaction on China's side. Chinese companies were comfortably importing chips from the likes of NVIDIA and other American European companies. And the downstream players like autonomous vehicles, EVs, AI companies, all the big clients of uh, semiconductors and chips, they previously were also very relaxed about it. But now everybody's doing chips. Everybody's working on semiconductors. And you have the most unlikely partners of the tech giants from Tencent to Alibaba to Huawei, uh, not to mention all the many, you know, smaller companies all undertaking this huge national uh, project. And China is invoking a Jiguo, a whole the nation approach, unseen since uh, Chairman Mao in the 1960s when, it tried, when he tried to develop nuclear um, power, uh, which is a whole the nation approach linking industries and labs and universities and actually taking inspiration from the Manhattan Project and Apollo program, uh, less so from Soviet Union, uh, the smarter versions of this, it's a whole of a nation national mobilization towards breakthrough technologies. And you wouldn't have gotten that if they could have comfortably relied on American components. Now, I think it's too early to judge um, what the outcome of that is. I do believe in big tech giants having that amount of resources and that amount of talent. Um, and, you know, the, the more that the U.S. cuts China off, the faster it will have to uh, accelerate and leapfrog. I know lots of companies trying to circumvent the regulations or the rules by coming up with new designs, new chip designs, and hence uh, trying to leapfrog. I'm not as uh, uh, sanguine about these 
these attempts. I think it's a major blow to these technology companies, but I think it is really too early to tell. And one argument that we can look back in history is Japan. You know, U.S. Japan Japanese technological competition was just really, uh, you know, uh, remarkably high, despite the fact that there are no ideological differences or uh, security problems. The U.S. unleashed a number of policies that look exactly like what it is doing uh, to uh, China today. But the rise of the Japanese electronic sector is actually one of the key reasons why the Japanese chip sectors rose, because the downward kind of downstream uh, players are very close to the semiconductor uh, companies, they provide feedback in a very short you know, amount of time. And that demand, that huge amount of demand that amounts to more than oil imports is now going back to domestic chip companies, which have seen six times, some of them six times or double uh, the revenues and profits from previous years. We just don't know what's going to happen. But this is for sure an unintended consequence. There's one other big area, I think, to dig into, and that is the, the government and the form of governance in China. I think there's little doubt from this discussion so far that China's slowing, and rightly so, as you would expect. Uh, I think the debate is about the, a question of degrees. But underpinning all of this is how the government will respond to it and whether it's well-placed to respond in the right way. So, Michael, let me come to you first. What is your sense of the, the strengths and weaknesses of the Chinese model of government? And will it be something that would allow it to sort of adapt as time goes by to mitigate this slowdown, to respond to it in the right way? Or is it your sense that partly because of the way they're structured, they won't have uh, a smart economic response? So I think the the big advantage for China is obviously with an autocratic system, you have incredible get stuff done capacity. If it's just about mobilizing resources, then there are certain issues that China can potentially solve simply by you know unleashing talent and and money at it. But of course, the the downside of that is mass fraud and corruption at the highest levels because there just isn't the kind of corrective mechanisms and checks on um, the system. And I would use the semiconductors area as an example, just because it is such an important sector of the economy. I mean, Xi Jinping had this grand plan and, and spent over $100 billion trying to promote a domestic semiconductor industry. And what happened was, you know, 15,000 companies registered as, as being part of this semiconductor ecosystem, and there was tremendous fraud. And now he's going after them with an anti-corruption campaign, wondering why so much of the money basically disappeared and didn't lead to the massive leaps in computing power at the highest ends that he was hoping for. So, you know, in terms of just the highest level innovation, there may be some areas, obviously, China built a nuclear weapon when it was a very poor country, simply by throwing numbers at it that China's had a number of successes, you know, in areas like e-commerce or solar or EVs, really areas where you're taking existing technologies, making them cheaper, better, and then producing them at a massive scale. I think China's system is lends itself to that kind of innovation. And it also, it, I think it remains to be seen whether, you know, big data and just the nature of technology, if it's changing in certain ways that naturally give an autocratic regime that doesn't have to worry about the privacy of individuals, just has access to tons of data, can really surge ahead because it can just um, cram through lots of data through algorithms and make them very powerful. But in terms of broader economic reform, you know, trying to get money back to households, trying to stimulate consumption, and certainly any of the sort of ESG goals, uh, those are much harder just because you have those entrenched vested interests. You only have a single party. So there isn't political opposition that can vouch for 
the little guy, and even though Xi Jinping will wrap in, himself in sort of the mantra of common prosperity, the fact that that initiative itself, as far as I can tell, is sort of an, a, a dead letter and hasn't really achieved any of the goals that it sought um, suggests that it's going to be very hard for this system to uh, to reform, especially given the geopolitical realities. It just the more you listen to Xi Jinping speak, it just seems like he's gearing up the nation for stormy seas ahead, as he said, this era of struggle where they all need to look for ways to sacrifice for the nation. That's that's not sort of encouraging a, a broader, more liberalized uh, economy that um, can go forward. And therefore, you're subject to some of the weaknesses of just a purely top-down model. Hey, you, what's your comeback? First of all, China is bigger than the Communist Party, by the way. I, I think in the West, we really have too much of a focus on the party itself. Um, look at the amazing entrepreneurs, uh, looking at uh, look at the amazing millennials that uh, go to the U.S. and 80 uh, percent of them have returned since 2013. Why? If China was not a great place for them, a good economic opportunities, why would they come back with jobs at Facebook and Google? Many of them do have great uh, economic prospects. Why do they come back? Because I think you need to ask the Chinese people how they really think. You know, that relationship with authority, where if we're taking the Western lens to look at it, yeah, it's intolerable, right? But that's, you're using your own preferences to evaluate a country with different culture and historical leanings. The relationship with authority from children to parents, by the way, the tiger mom phenomenon, you know, some of that would, would find it completely uh, unacceptable uh, as well. The relationship with students to teachers and the relationship from people to authority, not blind submission as we have recently seen, is just something that the Chinese people always have to balance. It doesn't mean that that stops them from being pragmatic, from being driven by uh, economic progress, but being driven by the fact that they can give their uh, kids a better education and more economic opportunities. And even if in China we're swinging between securing economics, uh, because the economy has plunged into a low point, we've seen a lot of pragmatic measures being taken place focused on the economy. And as much as previously argued about President Xi Jinping, he has not stopped any single measure of opening up the financial economy in the last uh, year or so. Very rapid pace of giving full licenses to American and European banks. Uh, companies uh, the, from the Swap Connects, Bond Connects, uh, uh, Stock Connects built between China and all around the world. It has to be okayed by him. Nothing he has stopped to block that. Because I think that um, in some areas, in many ways, China still embraces very much a globalization and Xi Jinping himself as well. The concept of government, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work in every country. You know, China right now is in a particular stage of development. I think China's state coordination, mobilization, the very decentralized economic uh, uh, model that I will uh, make the case for uh, is what actually helped China uh, achieve that goal in the last 40 years. Now, China's a new era. You know, my book is called The New Playbook. That has to, that no longer works as well. In an economy that's driven by innovation and sustainable growth, it has to be the market that does more of the work. And one more final really important statistic 70% of the wealth belonged to the state less than 40 years ago. Uh, by 2015, 70% of the wealth is accrued to the private sector. Despite whatever we say about the state control, the private sector uh, uh, contributes to 70% of GDP, 80% of innovation efforts, and 80% of jobs. So we can all be kind of, you know, um, uh, starkly surprised by the state involvement, but you just have to assess whether state capacity 
high quality state capacity is important. And I would actually refer to Jake Sullivan's recent speech about renewing economic leadership. Now, maybe you won't agree with that speech, but it sounds pretty much like industrial policies. And it pretty much sounds like a lot of state involvement, uh, like the China model to me. Hey, you, let me ask you this. One can debate the form of government. One can debate uh, cultures and peoples. But I think one thing that cuts across all societies is the ability to debate and the ability to contend with criticism. And what I like about this debate is that it's been very gray. There are facts on either side. Uh, both of you have sort of agreed on the gray sort of between the two sides. But give us a, a peek into the debate in China among sort of policymakers. Are they able to openly acknowledge some of the issues we've been discussing about demographics or debt or the fact that it's slowing? And, and how do they respond to that publicly? Um, well, I'm part of a few policy circles, and uh, especially when it comes to the economy, giving sound open advice without being too passionate or uh, too political, let's say, I think it's it's very common. So uh, I, I think that I think if the question is, has China become more tightly controlled and less liberal than in the past, then the, the, the answer is absolutely yes. But even if we look at debate in general, I think there's a misconception that I, I would like to point out uh, across the there is a more dynamic civic debate on social media platforms. Yes, there are taboo subjects that will have censorship. Uh, but for instance, you know, criticisms of local officials all the time, like you're calling them out for corruption or mistresses or whatever, you see that everywhere. Actually, one third of the topics in social media has to do with that. There were 11,000 protests organized alone just on land use rights and many, many more. And you can push the government to change. The fact that the Hangzhou people didn't like their facial recognition ticket entryway into parks, actually, they made lots of complaints about it and local officials actually canceled it. So it's not as if there's no debate at all and everybody thinks the same. I would say that's not the case at all. Just talk to that. Um, look at the social media and social network. There are certain subjects that are for sure going to be censored, but often is the case. These bloggers will, netizens will kind of blog at midnight. And by the time the officials are out there trying to look at these is issues, it's already been blown up. And so I think it's not true that the you know, the civil society is unaware of important change. And I absolutely agree that there's not enough debate and challenges and open discussions in China. I just don't think it's the ultimate factor that will mean that spells China's economic demise. Michael, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, you know, obviously, KU makes a lot of points about, uh, you know, how to think about China differently than we do here in the West. Do you think that the the China debate here, I know it's turned in the last few years, um, you know, your argument on, on China peaking, of course, is immensely popular. How do you see that argument playing out over the next few years? Do you see, you know, when you have economists like KU make the points she's making, uh, do you think that changes perspectives in the U.S. at all? Um, unfortunately, not. I think um, if you're just talking about this sort of negative perception or the hostility that the United States has now towards China, that seems like it's pretty well entrenched because it's not just sort of a D.C. bubble. I mean, the latest public opinion polls show a pretty negative view by the American public. And 
uh, some people think this is because it's a big misunderstanding. And if somehow the United States and China could talk more and the US would do more to accommodate China's rise, that we could kind of uh, sort out the mix up. I, I see it as just a, a clear conflict of interest between the United States and China that many of the major issues in their relationship from Taiwan to governance over the South China Sea to just the nature of what type of economic model should be allowed under global trade rules, obviously democracy, whether it should be promoted or squelched or whether Russia should be propped up or ground down. I mean, just across all of these major issues, there's a clear conflict of interest and history just shows when you have what political scientists call an enduring rivalry, like sets of countries that have now accumulated a history of bad blood. They have uh, clashing interests. It's just very hard to unwind that hostility. And the best you can hope for is a sort of Cold War situation where you're not necessarily lashing out at each other, but you are competing in various areas, using measures short of war to kind of expand your side's influence at the expense of the other. And unfortunately, that's, of course, just a very different model than the one world, one dream, you know, go, go globalization 1990s vision that I think a lot of us had hoped for. And unfortunately, I just see that as as the future um, going forward. One, you know, in the Cold War, U.S. containment policy was there to try to block Soviet advances until the internal weaknesses of the Soviet system forced Soviet leaders to scale back some of their ambitions um, and seek a reconciliation that for, from, an, from a purely American standpoint, uh, that would be the best outcome of this sort of peak China uh, uh, thesis, that as China's economy slows, as it starts to face these geopolitical headwinds, leaders in Beijing say, you know what, we, we need to uh, maybe dial back our territorial uh, claims, or we need to um, maybe work with the United States on, on the Russia situation, or et cetera. Um, but until that happens, until the Chinese feel like, hey, we have to maybe uh, negotiate for a better deal or until the Americans, maybe there's a problem on the American side, feel like there's been a shift in the balance of power and you now have to recognize China's rise. I just see this uh, sort of standoff, um, unfortunately, going on for, for many years. Michael Beckley, thank you for your time. And KU Jin in Beijing, thank you for staying up for us. Real pleasure to have you both on. Great to be with you both. Thank you so much. And that was Michael Beckley and K.U. Jin debating whether China has peaked or not. Next week, Congressman Ro Khanna. He sits on the Select Committee on China and he has a plan to reset U.S.-China relations. What is that plan? Will it work? We'll find out. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up on our website, foreignpolicy.com slash live. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. As you know, I often take subscriber questions. Sign up, use the code FPLive for a discount to that and all the other good stuff on our website. And you can share your questions with us for the AMA I mentioned earlier. Email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. That is podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. It's for an episode that'll air later this summer, and I will answer your questions. That's it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time.